you can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm John Lovett. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. A beautiful day for democracy here in Des Moines. <laughs> we are, uh, so we're recording this bonus episode at 1 p.m. on Central Time. Central Time on what day is it? Tuesday. <laughs> and so at 4 p.m. Central, um, we should have at least uh, half the results. So by the time you hear this, we will have some results. Um, from the uh, Iowa caucuses. But uh, for now, we are just going to talk about uh, everything that went wrong uh, yesterday, Monday, and some of the things that went right, some I the, guess. We'll try to find some things that went we'll right. We'll try to find some things that went right. Um, okay, so the four of us and the Crooked Media team, we started the night. We went to a a caucus uh, precinct in Ankeny. Ankeny 09. Ankeny 09, which is a suburb of Des Moines. And... Um, you know, things seemed pretty smooth at ours. <laughs> Seriously, no, no. I mean, it was, it was like, perfectly run. That's why we're laughing because it's like you wouldn't have known. We we went to our caucus location. It was a pretty diverse mix of uh, supporters of all the different kind of candidates. Uh, I think Bernie ended up winning our caucus, but Pete was right behind him. Warren was right behind him, uh, and then Klobuchar was yeah. behind Warren. Yeah, four candidates reach viability, which is pretty. Unusual, I think. Yes, it is. Yeah, and then and the process of counting and everything else and the realignment and all that it went pretty smoothly. And then uh, we all left and drove back to Des Moines to watch the results, and that's when we started seeing that uh, uh, they were not going to be reporting the results anytime soon because yeah. there was an issue. Kink, so, it, kink in the hose. <laughs> so let's, um, I mean, just because there's so much different information out there, let's talk about how the process was supposed to work um, with an emphasis on what was different about it this year and obviously hopefully many of you know exactly how the process was supposed to work this year because you listened to on the ground in iowa um but in case you haven't heard it yet uh tommy tell us what was different about this year and how the process was supposed to work sure so there were a few things that were different this year there are some changes to the rules themselves which meant uh on first alignment meaning uh when when everyone first lines up in the corners of their precinct and you determine viability or not you determine if they have 15 percent or not uh you are then locked in with your candidate uh so that was one new rule change. There were also these presidential preference forms that people filled out. So you physically wrote down who you're caucusing for. And then what the data that was reported back that was going to be released by the IO Democratic Party changed. So they were going to release a raw vote count after the first alignment, the raw vote count after the second alignment, uh, the traditional state delegate equivalent number, uh, and then like how many delegates you would get out of the 41 in the state. That was the plan. And this was the first time that um, all of those sets of data would be released or would be reported. Yes. Usually it's just the state delegate equivalents and That's then right. ultimately the pledge delegates. And so the raw vote totals, both in the first alignment and the second alignment, those usually didn't have to be reported. Uh, and so now they were going to be reported for the first time. So there was extra data to report. And the way they were going to report it was they had this app um, that was going to report all the data, but they also, as a backup, had... Um, you could call it in via phone. Um, and uh, it seems like the there was problems with both of those systems. <laughs> Love it. Why did you design that app the way you did? <laughs> Hello, it is me, app designer. <laughs> <laughs> I work very long and hard on programming app. Goes smoothly, works exactly according to plan. 
So um, oh, that's so stupid. <laughs> I guess the best way to do this is just I will read the um, the statement from the Iowa Democratic Party that was basically the last statement that they released uh, super late on on uh, Monday night. They said as precinct caucus results started coming in, the Iowa Democratic Party ran them through an accuracy and quality check. It became clear that there were inconsistencies with the reports. We determined with certainty that the underlying data collected via the app was sound, but while the app was recording data accurately, it was reporting out only partial data. We have determined that this was due to a coding issue in our reporting system, which they then fixed. And then separately, there was a phone issue. Apparently, the issues with the app were confounded by failures with the party's hotline system. The IDP had set up a phone hotline as a backup method for precinct chairs to report results in case the app was not working. However, they were completely overwhelmed with calls Monday night, and precinct chairs were left on hold for hours. What was your reaction, Tommy, when this was all unfolding, having been there for a while? Uh, thrilled. <laughs> no, I mean, like, look, this is a more complicated year than ever. There's more data being reported. There's so many candidates. I mean, it's crazy that there were precincts where five candidates were viable, right? So there, yeah. there's more math to be done. Um, just stepping back, like caucuses are are not a precise process. This is not like scientific, really. You're, we were in a room with 283 people, and then human beings divided it up, counted them, moved them around, counted them again, and then ultimately split 10 delegates amongst these candidates, right? So it's an imprecise process. This isn't fucking Deloitte. And in some ways... Uh, all this more new... Enron. Yeah, it's more Enron than Deloitte. But, <laughs> the but Enron so, caucus. <laughs> at, at scale, I think there's probably always going to be some errors at caucuses. You know, in some ways, the transparency of a caucus where you literally stand up and do all the math publicly helps uh, eliminate some of those errors. But there will always be problems. I think that this app and some of the technical flaws uh, were a challenge. I think that there's a bigger problem of people probably not being fully trained to use these new technologies well. I mean, there's reports that people were downloading the app day of. Which just seems crazy. I, that is inexcusable. I don't know how that's possible. And there clearly wasn't a backup system. You know, you have all these paper ballots people are filling out. What was the process for then retaining like up to a couple hundred thousand pieces of paper? You need a system for that. You need some way to use it or else you're just sitting on a bunch of paper. So my reaction was enormous frustration that uh, we didn't have any answer uh, to who's winning. Uh, there's no winnowing of the field coming out of Iowa. There's no bounce for any of the candidates. Uh, it really sucks and saddens me that people are just calling into question uh, the primary process generally and with some good reason here. And then like my heart just breaks for all these kids and campaigns who worked so hard for a year, put literally everything they had into this campaign and they came out not feeling like winners or losers, but just let down by the party. Yeah. That is the most heartbreaking thing to me. The thing that I'll agree with all of that, like I feel terrible for the people who were at our caucus who did everything exactly right. The guy who was the caucus chair was like a master of organization. Yeah, he really was. He was awesome. And jokes. Yeah, and, and quite, funny. quite funny. funny, yeah. But there's also, I think Tommy hit on a really interesting point here that is shows why this was a little bit of a perfect storm of problems, which is you have all the new complication of the new system. But if you think back to recent years, the math was exponentially more complicated, even by the old system. In 2016, the room split up in two ways. Right. And maybe there was one or two O'Malley people who they would fight over, but overwhelmingly, there was two candidates. In 2008, there were three candidates. Yep. I think maybe Richardson or Biden got a single delegate somewhere, but almost every room split three ways. So there was less on realignment. There was, it was just a much less complicated system. Here where you have four and five candidates reaching viability in each place makes this so much harder. Plus, you know, decent sized turnout. We can talk about the large, the turnout issues, but still a lot of people, like 283 people in our in the room we were in. And that it it is complicated and hard. And then when you put in phone system that doesn't work, an app that doesn't work, um, a new system with people being employed by volunteers who have been doing the old system for decades in some cases, it was a recipe for disaster. Yeah, love it. We were watching the caucus and you know, there are many, many critiques of, about the Iowa caucus that are completely legitimate. Iowa is not demographically representative of the country. Uh, there's a lot of people who can't caucus. People with disabilities sometimes can't caucus. People who have uh, autism sometimes don't feel comfortable caucusing. It's not a uh, blind ballot. But yet, seeing it unfold, you actually appreciate what makes it democratic, what makes it feel like communities coming together to talk this thing through. It is civil. It is 
collaborative. It is a bunch of people who ultimately have the same goal coming together to do something positive. And <laughs> the way in which this has been destroyed by yeah. the failure to report the information, it's it's a heartbreaking it's a heartbreaking thing. You know, this is the beginning of the most important primary uh, of our lives. We've been saying that for a year, and it's an incredibly inauspicious and disastrous beginning. And it's also just a deeply sad fact that we're going to be hearing about this from irresponsible people like Donald Trump and Lindsey Graham and others for the next year. Yeah, I mean, going back to the the site that we were at, right, we had this precinct captain who was doing everything right. All the people who were volunteering with him to put this on were like excellent. All the supporters and all the precinct captains from the different campaigns, even as they were like realigning, they were treating each other well. No one was arguing. No one was fighting. Like it just went off. So there's been plenty of blame spread around to a lot of places that it probably shouldn't. But I do think, and Tommy, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like the majority of the blame is on the Iowa Democratic Party itself for not, I mean, there was problems with the app for sure, right? The recording problems. So that deserves some blame for sure. But like a lot of these precinct chairs weren't trained on the app. A lot of them didn't even know about the app for a couple of weeks until a couple of weeks before. They didn't do dry runs. They didn't have the phone system, wasn't ready to handle a bunch of calls in case something went down. It just seems like they should have planned for all this. Yeah, look, it's an enormously complicated process. It's almost 1,700 mini elections. But what I've heard anecdotally from people is that you know, they didn't have people to run some of the precincts until the last days. They were scrambling to find folks. Uh, it, it seems like there were people who just didn't understand the rules and they screwed up the alignment processes or didn't do realignment or, you know, screwed up the data. So with the caveat that the, that we don't really know exactly what happened, we don't know if it was just a terribly coded app or if it was user error among people who aren't familiar with the app, whatever. I don't know. I don't care. The Iowa Democratic Party, you had one job, literally, yeah. it was to make this go off. And it was an unmitigated disaster. And there was a lot of momentum Lead, and I know those people and they're nice and they're well-meaning, but there was a lot of momentum going into last night uh, among people in the party about how the primary process needs to change. And I think uh, there is now literally no argument for Iowa going first because part of the deal we make is that, uh, yes, it, it, it's a not representative state. All the problems love it listed, but Iowa Democrats take it really seriously. Candidates get vetted and the process gets run and, and we learn something and it winnows the field. That deal didn't, they didn't come through on their end of the bargain last night. And yeah. So here we are in fucking limbo. So as this massive fuck up is unfolding last night, um, people start spreading conspiracy theories and disinformation about what went wrong. And it wasn't just random Twitter users. Uh, the Trump campaign and other Republicans said it was rigged. Uh, a few journalists implied that, even a few politicians. I saw blame directed towards the DNC, Tom Perez, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, Robbie Mook, yeah, who's right. former campaign manager at one point, yeah. Silicon Valley. Robbie Mook was trending on Twitter for something right. he had nothing to do with, apparently. So, like, obviously, you know, we just talked about how most of the responsibility lies with the Iowa Democratic Party here. But does it, doesn't it seem like it's not too much to ask to for everyone to just wait for all the information and reporting about what went wrong to come out before you start, like just jumping at conspiracy theories, especially if you are in a position of authority in some way. It is too much to ask. I mean, that, that's what I'm saying. Are we just like, part of me wondered, even if it was just a minor problem, or even if things went relatively well, like, are we just in a situation now that when there are fuck ups like this, people aren't going to be able to handle them appropriately? And not just fuck ups, but confusion. Right, confusion. We are going to be in a situation if we run into a close race in California where California will not be called potentially for a week or more after Super Tuesday because we do mail-in ballots. The Republicans exploited that massively in 2018 because they were ahead on election day count and as in the crooked seven districts and as those ballots came in and it was you know these terms about like missing ballots and ballot stuffing and all of that and we are ripe for that because our, we live in this dystopic media environment where bad actors have all the wrong in, in incentives, and we have a massively complex primary process that lends itself to confusion on its best day and incompetence on its worst. Yeah. The other thing, too, is like the idea that um, we always talk about this, that when we were in government and 
it was a question of like did something go wrong because it was some uh, someone was you know it was a conspiracy or some malicious attempt or was it incompetence it's usually like nine out of ten times incompetence totally and it seems clearly like that was the case here which is not excusable in any fucking way but the idea that um i don't know someone was going to like develop an app that somehow swung the caucuses towards one candidate or the other is just like it fucking defies belief yeah it defies belief also you know look a chaotic deeply important situation with very limited information is going to be revealing in how people respond and so i think you saw people like aoc and others trying to turn the temperature down saying yeah. everybody just breathe, we'll get the information. I think that's generally the attitude we tend to take in moments of crisis, not to say that there isn't a huge fucking problem, not to say it's not a big deal, not to ignore the fuck up, but to say, let's wait till we have genuine information. But then you also see people who use it as an opportunity to go after their favorite villains, to score points, to excite division, uh, to fight the same fights they fight online every other day of their lives. And it's obviously unhelpful. It's obviously damaging. There's this book, a lot of people are saying the new conspiracism and the assault on democracy. And I've been thinking about it a lot because it does capture something essential about how we respond in these moments. And the longer we went without an answer as to what happened, and the more people who support Bernie or Pete or any of the candidates were getting more and more angry that their candidate may have been denied a key moment, the more they were looking for something big to explain their their terrible feelings. And uh, this is just a fuck up by some incompetence of people who didn't plan enough is unsatisfying. And so you look for an answer that matches your level of anger. And I think we see that all the time. And one of the unfortunate consequences of that is people just asking questions, people just doing internet sleuthing without much to back it up in a moment of real uncertainty have fed into what Donald Trump and the Trump campaign and Lindsey Graham, who uh, buried the difference between right and wrong with John McCain, uh, will... <laughs> Uh, will use now for the next year in Facebook ads to target and demobilize potential Democratic voters. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think we should point out that the campaigns uh, were actually pretty responsible. Yeah, and pretty for measured. sure. Uh, some of them put out some of the information that they had it at that point of time because all these campaigns, you know, they're talking to their precinct captains who are reporting back and, and they're uh, putting that into an Excel sheet and trying to figure out what's happening in real time. Um, you know, we can talk later about uh, some of the things Mayor Pete said and the fact that he, you know, declared victory in a lot of ways and whether that was appropriate or responsible. But, you know, I, I think what was disheartening last night was a lot of these uh, additional data collection and reporting measures were put in place because of concerns the Bernie Sanders campaign had in 2016. And yet that didn't they stop. They wanted more transparency. They wanted more transparency and rightly so. Uh, but that did not stop a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters for trying to wedge the challenges in reporting back bad data into a frame of this is the party trying to fuck Bernie Sanders. And the most just asinine, absurd example of that is someone online who declared that this is on Obama because he wanted Tom Perez in charge of the DNC, apparently not understanding that the DNC wasn't running the Iowa caucuses, right? So like- DNC people, doesn't run state parties, guys. People, Just doesn't, they're independent. People, like Lovett said, were freaking out and emotional and went nuts and just lost their fucking minds. We should reiterate again, like the Sanders campaign has been maybe one of the most responsible campaigns. And that's true on the record in terms of what they said publicly and off the record when I was talking to them. They were like, ah, we think they're they're calming people down. Yeah. And, and, and I'd also just say too, you know, it's unsatisfying, but even in a moment where there wasn't a lot of information and people were looking to find someone to blame, it was hard to find an ideological direction to go in because we don't know what the outcome is going to be. But uh, it seems like the two campaigns most upset by not knowing what happened are Pete Buttigieg and Bernie Sanders. And the right, only- who are not, who are not, uh, not on the same page here. Right, exactly. <laughs> and the only, and, and by the way, it's also worth pointing out that the only campaign that's come close yeah, well, yeah. to questioning the results is the Biden campaign. Yeah. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. 
let's talk about how all the candidates are handling this. Um, and let's start with Mayor Pete, as Tommy was just talking about, who basically declared himself the winner in a late night speech where he said, quote, Iowa, you have shocked the nation because by all indications, we are going on to New Hampshire victorious. Um, his team put out a memo based on the information they received from 77% of their precinct captains, um, which told them they were doing eight points better than they had expected. And so therefore, they had guessed that they will win the most state delegate equivalents. Now, again, by the time you hear this, we'll probably have more information on this. But let's actually, before we talk about whether it was right or wrong for him to do this, Dan, can you talk a little bit about how campaigns know this kind of information internally or how much they know internally on a night like this as they're waiting for official public results to come out? So a campaign builds a model based on their data of how they have to perform in each precinct to get to what they believe their win number is. And that model is turnout based. But you can dial it up or dial it down based on what turnout is. And you make that prediction based on how many people show up. And so these campaigns, if they are well organized, have a precinct captain whose job it is to tell someone via email, phone or text in the headquarters how many people are in that caucus site, right? So the Pete campaign's model may have said, we're, gonna, we're expecting 350 people at this site. There a person tells them it's 283. They then adjust their model to that point. And so these results that the campaigns have put out are based on their model. The, and I think if Pete is reporting 80, you know, near 80% of precincts, he has a good sense. The thing that I would caution everyone on him is no one knows total turnout. Right. So... You could have really high turnout in some areas and really low turnout in others, and that could affect your, your model, your model, and your estimate. If, and, if you're not at 100 percent, precinct captains are giving you data. Yeah. So, so then with 77 percent, the the Buttigieg campaign looks at the data and says, "Okay, I think we might be ahead in delegates by the end of the night." They don't say, you know, raw vote at the final alignment, but they do think the delegate number. And we've talked before about how these could all be different. So they send him. So all the other candidates go out. And just give sort of their stump speeches. You know, Amy Klobuchar says, we punched above our weight tonight. Um, the other ones kind of say, let's see. They give their stump speeches. And Pete declares victory. Um, what do we think about that? I think he read Crooked.com in the piece that Hillary Clinton's communications director, Lily Adams, wrote yes. on the site last week that said, in, in a moment of confusion, if you're confident, declare victory and go to New Hampshire. And that's what Pete did. Yeah. And I, and, and I guess some of the context for this, too, is even if everything went perfectly last night and we've talked about this before these candidates leave iowa tuesday night is the state of the union and then there's another debate friday night and then the new hampshire primary is tuesday and all of these candidates when you leave iowa you're looking for some kind of a big win to get momentum as you're headed into new hampshire but now that there's a whole bunch of different sets of data and someone could win the vote and someone could win the delegates and someone could win the pledge delegates there could be multiple winners and so we always knew it was kind of be going to be a race to have someone spin their win as the real win. And now that there was this big fuck up, I'm sure the Buttigieg campaign thought, okay, well, if we're the leaders in delegates, we better fucking say something now because if this goes on for days and we don't know the actual results, I will be completely meaningless to this campaign. But you could also make an argument that maybe you shouldn't go out there and say uh, we're victorious when you don't know for sure we're victorious. Like Pete's campaign has said, like, we just have to do well here. We, you know, and they'll say, like, kind of on background, like, we just have to beat Biden, but they really need to win. Right. Pete is struggling mightily in national polls. Right. He has nigh on to 0% African American support. He needs to get escape velocity to have a chance to actually be the nominee. And he, like, they have not so subtly modeled themselves, maybe not, maybe a little bit ironically, on Obama and mm -hmm. his path. And Obama won Iowa. It was a gigantic deal. We didn't win New Hampshire, but it, it gave us an opportunity to actually take on Hillary Clinton. And, and make it look like it was then just a two-candidate race. Yeah. And, and that, that option does, is not available for Pete as of the recording of this. You look at what the, the five campaigns have said. You had uh, Amy Klobuchar go out there and say she punched above her weight. You had Warren go out there and say, it's pretty tight at the top up here. There's three of us, then a space, and then maybe Biden. You had Biden go out there and saying... We got delegates, right? And you had Bernie and Pete declare some sort of victory. And to me, that tells you what they're all feeling. And it kind of, it aligns with each other. And so the thing that I'm struck by is thinking, let's say we find out, and we don't know, but let's say we find out that either, you know, Pete or Bernie can can really declare victory here. They were really denied something incredibly important, a 
democratic socialist who's been trying to build a movement for three decades and won the Iowa caucus. That's an incredibly big deal. Or a gay person won a statewide contest for the Democratic Party to choose its presidential nominee. That's incredible. That's historic. And it is just sad that we're here the next day speculating as to whether or not they should have given victory speeches. It's just, we're going to say it over and over again, but it just, the the reason the conspiracy theories are so frustrating is they don't actually uh, point to any grand villain because it looks like the two people that may have been hurt the most are the people on the opposite ends of the ideological spectrum. Tommy, what'd you think of Pete's move there? I get it from a raw political perspective. And I do think there is something to be said for um, getting ahead of waiting for the all the results to come in and just sort of making your case. That said, I think when you combine the fact that Pete really uh, leaned in harder than in the other campaigns in terms of declaring victory and the fact that they clearly are the reason that the Des Moines Register poll was spiked you can understand why that leaves a, a pretty bad taste in a lot of the other campaigns' mouths. Now, where it gets ridiculous is this company that developed the app, this shadow or whatever the fuck the company is. You've got all these like online uh, inspector gadgets, like you know, figuring out through FEC reports that you know Pete has paid them and and the Iowa's Democratic Party's paid them in Nevada, and they're trying to like draw all these red strings and allege that it was conspiracy. That's where it gets completely ludicrous, and you lose me. Um, but, you know, I, I kind of winced when I saw him tweet, uh, Iowa, you have shocked the nations by all indications. We're going on in New Hampshire victorious because, you know, maybe they think that's true, but there's no way for us to vet their data. So it's kind of hard to trust. It's over torqued, right? Like you can't say the results are undeniable. They're definitionally deniable. They're zero percent reporting. And you can't say all indications because it's some indications. It's well, some indications. I, I guess I guess where I come down on this is just like if it's true that Pete is the delegate leader. Then you look back on that and you're like, oh, yeah, I guess it was smart for him to yep. do that and get out ahead of it. If it's not, then he deserves a ton of criticism, of course, for doing that. But I guess we're going to know. Like, maybe by the time you're hearing this, we <laughs> right. will know. Or never. Right. Who knows? Yeah. yeah, that's the problem. The, or never. Whether Pete is first or second, and there does seem to at least be some unsaid consensus among the campaigns that that is the order. Right. Because no one, that, the other important thing here is no one has challenged so far. Pete's contention that they're going to win the delegates or Bernie's contention that they're going to win the vote total. And up until this year, the definition of how you won the Iowa caucus was you got the most state delegate equivalents, right, Tommy? Yeah. So like that's how Obama did it. That's how Clinton did it. Clinton probably, although I don't, we don't know because we don't have data, but by all anecdotal evidence, lost the popular vote among Iowa caucus goers in 16, but won more state delegate equivalents. Mm -hmm. And so Pete, if that is true, he did win the Iowa caucus and if this was his conspiracy, it was a conspiracy to deny himself his right. moment. Yeah. Um. <laughs> right. that's, that's the other thing about the like acronym connected to Pete and Shadow and stuff like that. It's like, so the app ended up screwing over Pete, though. How did the, how did the <laughs> app fuck Pete, with the phones? Pete, oh, 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 yeah, I know. We keep saying that. Like, yeah, the uh, no one's looked into the uh, the shadow conspiracy behind uh, jamming up the phone lines, which is a pretty old technology. Incompetence. <laughs> is always going to be a safer bet over malevolent masterminds. <laughs> it, some, once in a while, you'll find a mastermind, yeah. right? It'll happen So we most say, of the time. So after Pete did this, Bernie's campaign pushed out internal numbers. So we're just going to go candidate by candidate here. So Bernie's campaign pushed out internal numbers, they say, are from nearly 40% of precincts, showing Bernie with 29.7% of the final vote, Pete 24.6, Warren 21.2, Biden 12.4, Klobuchar at 11 and they said in their statement, in Sanders' statement, that they recognize it doesn't replace the full data from the IDP, but their supporters worked too hard and they wanted to have that data out, which I thought was a pretty good hedge from the Bernie thing. I guess my question was, and you brought this up, Dan, actually, why Bernie's only had 40% of uh, precinct captains reporting? Like, I would have thought they would have had more data. They were up to 60% by this morning, I believe. Okay, yeah. um, so a very well-organized campaign would get you, I'd say, at least... 80% of precincts. You would have someone whose job, a volunteer whose job it was there to get that information. So I was very surprised about which Bernie's campaign, which has seemed incredibly well organized in the state the entire time we've been here at least, would have that data come in so slowly. And I would bet, just knowing the Warren people as we do, that they actually have at least as good a data as Pete does. But it is, it doesn't raise questions to me, at least about the outcome, just about why that is. I don't, I don't, I think that they're giving. I don't believe that they are 
hiding data or anything right. like that. It's just I thought it was I was surprised by how few precincts they had information from within you know five hours after the caucus. Yeah, but I just bet it's for mundane reasons. It's like the precinct captain in such and such county put their kid to bed and went to sleep. You know yeah, what I mean? Exactly. Like I, I was talking to people in the Warren campaign this morning. They're still chasing down internal data as well. It's just you know it's a volunteer led process. In the grand scheme of things, a very well planned coordinated system to gather this data is not that useful, right? They're all on their way to New Hampshire regardless. They didn't know that they were going to wake up to no fucking results. Yeah. Some reporter tweeted last night that if we weren't all competing with each other, we could all get this data in like yeah. two hours. <laughs> yeah, no, that's <laughs> funny. Well, you brought up the Warren campaign. I sh you know, earlier I said the Sanders campaign has been one of the most responsible on this whole thing. I think maybe the most responsible campaign has been the Warren campaign. They basically put out a statement. They, they've released no numbers. They haven't declared anything. They've said, we're helping the party as much as we can. We're trying to like give them the data that we have too to make sure everything's right. The, the Warren people think there's like a clear tier one that's like Bernie, Pete, and Elizabeth Warren, and then a clear tier two, which is Amy Klobuchar and Joe Biden. Now, in a normal race, the 1% difference between the candidates in that top tier is everything, right? Yep. And, and what stinks now is because we're still waiting on this data, because it's coming in piecemeal, because some of it we might never get, we might not ever have total clarity on that. And yeah. that would be infuriating to me. Yeah, and that and that really sucks for the Warren campaign too, because if they came in a really close, or if they end up coming in a really close third to Bernie and to Buttigieg, then that would be, you know, that would be a big deal for her out of Iowa if it was a clear. This also sucks for Amy Klobuchar, who seems to have right. had like a surprisingly good night, which well, normally would true. be like the second big narrative out of this. Instead, the big story coming out of Iowa is this is a clusterfuck. And that's yeah. a bummer for every campaign that competed, except probably Joe Biden. Well, that's right. exactly. So that brings us to Joe Biden. Um, so but the Biden campaign, talking about how all the campaigns were super responsible at the beginning, they were the first ones to release a letter from their lawyer um, earlier in the night when things started getting fucked up, basically saying, you know, the app has failed, the phone system has failed, you know, both are true. Basically sort of like putting everyone on notice that they were upset about the results themselves. And then the Biden deputy campaign manager this morning said, if you have a process where you can't be confident that the results that are being reported are reflective of the votes that people cast last night in the process, that's a real concern. So it does seem like the Biden campaign has gone further than the other campaigns and perhaps not just saying that this was a fuck up on reporting the results, but questioning perhaps the integrity of the results themselves. Um, what did you guys think about that? It's not what you do when you think you won the Iowa caucus. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. I, I, is it fair? We don't know, but it might be. I don't know what they're looking at that leads them to believe that, but I also don't think that given the disaster all around us that I'm going to uh, criticize them for wondering that aloud. I would say this. I don't think anybody's in a position to defend what the Iowa party has done. And I understand why the Biden campaign, especially if they think they underperformed, is going to put out a statement like that. There's a big difference between saying there's a problem with this reporting system. There may even be a problem with some of the numbers and claiming that there's some kind of vector against your candidate, right? Which they're not saying, but it's in some way implied by them making this stink. I was very uncomfortable when I saw that last night. After having slept for approximately three hours on it, I'm not sympathetic, but I do like, it is very possible that there are real questions and it could be that some of the precincts where they expect to do better are the smaller, more rural ones where there may be more problems. Like the Polk County Democratic Party was able to figure out all their stuff and drive the numbers over to the headquarters. Right. They, the headquarters turned it away, which is another problem, <laughs> but they got the answers. Yeah, you know? the <laughs> so I've seen a bunch of like bigger, better organized county parties who have been able to handle their own business. And that's probably not happening out yeah. in the rural places, but we shouldn't disconnect that from the fact that he... If all the reports from all the campaigns are true and what we saw anecdotally, then he has a very big incentive to not have these results come out or have or not have them yeah. be seen as declarative. I guess I would say I understand their concern, but I would have preferred a much more nuanced statement of like what you just said or saying, you know, we think that we did well in a lot of these more rural counties where we've heard more reports of problems and we just want to wait and see. And I actually think you know, the campaign statements I've had some issues with Joe Biden in an event today in New Hampshire was like, let's just all take a breath, wait and see till all the results come in. I think we might surprise people, whatever. I think saying stuff like that is completely fine. Good for them. I, I worry about unless you actually have evidence, you know, starting to in an environment like this, questioning perhaps the integrity of the results, which they're sort I, of getting a little close to. I, I don't would think they separate have. two things. There's the integrity and the accuracy. 
right. The integrity right. suggests malfeasance somewhere, right. right? That someone has cheated or rigged a system. Accuracy is about competence. Clearly, there's reasons to question the competence. Agreed. What will it take for Democrats to beat Donald Trump in November? I'm John Favreau, and that's the big question I try to answer in season two of The Wilderness, a podcast from Crooked Media. Over six episodes, I talk to voters, strategists, organizers, and candidates in the battleground states around the country who will decide the election. We'll travel to the four most competitive regions on the road to 270 electoral votes and 51 Senate seats, and listen to focus groups with voters in Pennsylvania, Arizona, Florida, and Wisconsin. Together, we're going to try to unpack the complicated and surprising reasons voters support a particular candidate or choose not to participate at all. Subscribe and listen to all six episodes of season two on The Wilderness on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. I'm John Lovett, and I, along with co-hosting Pod Save America, also host Love It or Leave It to walk you through the biggest news of the week from impeachment votes to primary fights to whatever Facebook's apologizing for and usually what I've thought of the crown. Each week, I'm joined by some of the funniest comedians in the game. We've had a bunch of presidential candidates. I asked Mayor Pete which Chris he thought was the hottest, and uh, we got some answers. We quiz the audience. We play games. We rant about what's bugging us. There are tangents on local fast food options, all of your favorite topics. New episodes of Love It or Leave It drop every Saturday morning. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. So we talked a little bit about who's hurt most by this debacle. Um, I was going to ask, does it help anyone? It might help Joe Biden if he ends up coming in fourth or fifth, right? Because it's just such a muddle. And then he sort of gets away with what would have been probably the, the worst narrative of the night if he came in fourth or maybe even fifth. Right? If, Joe Biden, if Joe Biden ultimately comes in fifth, this is a incredible rescue of Joe Biden, right? If he comes in fifth behind Amy Klobuchar, that would have been an extremely damaging, far-reaching story for his campaign. And by the way, like, you know, they can try to kind of sow doubt in what the outcome would be, even if they have some legitimate grievances. But, you know, I'm sure inside of that campaign, the bigger question is not what happened in Iowa. It's what do we do moving forward that we have this incredible weakness that may have been res- revealed by this result. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about turnout for a second. We don't, of course, know the final turnout, but we did get a statement from the party earlier in the night as things were going off the rails that they believe the turnout was on track to match the 2016 caucuses. And then um, I believe that Pete Buttigieg's campaign statement also said they thought it was on track to match 2016 from their internal data. How worrisome, Dan, is that to you that the turnout in an election like this would be lower than it was in 2008 and when it was record turnout? I think we were all, myself included, overly optimistic about reaching 2008 level turnout, in part because this state has moved 19 points in the Republican direction at the presidential level in that 12 year period. So there's, you're operating with fewer Democrats. Right. I, like, I'm very worried about it. I think we've had a thousand organizers in the state knocking doors for a year, and you would have thought you could bring more new people into the process. So that is concerning. There are some factors here that I think are worth at least addressing. One is, People were very unsure. Just anecdotally, all the people we talked to as we like went around, people were like, I don't know about this. I don't know, you know, this person or this person, or I got a list of three. And it's hard to commit to go to on a very cold night to go to a three-hour caucus when you're not passionate for one person. Because caucuses are always about enthusiasm. The second issue is the caucus has not been part of the conversation for the last 10 days. Normally there is this huge ramp up for it, but we have had impeachment. Every cable channel has instead of having candidates on. Rachel Maddow's been canceled for a week, basically, so you can show impeachment. And then Kobe Bryant, which is another thing. Like I think political people, we don't think enough about how non-political news stories affect right. passive political observers' ability to consume political news. And I, like the Iowa caucus was at best the third biggest story in the country in the run-up to it. And that's true in Iowa just as across the country. So there's a number of factors there, but 
I'm worrying, but not panicking about it. Yeah, you, you could certainly see a scenario with that many undecided caucus goers. And I think some of the early data did show that more people than usual made up their minds in the last two days. And we saw it in our precinct as well when people are really, I mean, the way that we all look at politics as we observe it is that, you know, people's supporters are enthusiastic and passionate and don't like the other candidates. And that within the precinct that we saw, like the woman that gave, that stood up to give the speech on behalf of Joe Biden to get people to come over to the Biden corner ended up happily caucusing for Elizabeth Warren right after that when they weren't viable. And, a whole, and that happened with a whole bunch of other candidates across ideologies. People went to Klobuchar, Yang, Warren, Buttigieg, Sanders. So, um, so there's that. And you have to think to yourself, if you're an Iowan, it could very, you could very easily think, um, I'm absolutely going to show up in 2020 to make sure Trump's not president. But I can't really figure out which of these candidates I want right now. So why am I going to go out and sit in a caucus for a couple hours? Yeah. It's true. Look, I, I am worried. I mean, uh, the 2016 turnout was about 170,000 people. The 2008 turnout was about 240,000 people. So to Dan's point, I think that does speak to an enthusiasm gap. And, you know, the conventional wisdom was that we might see higher than the 2008 level because there were so many campaigns, because there was so much organizing happening, um, et cetera. So uh, that does make me nervous. And it does make me even more nervous that uh, there are probably some people who turned out who will leave feeling like their vote didn't matter. Uh, and that is the worst thing of all, because that is what Republicans want us to think, which is that uh, nothing will change. All candidates are the same. So why try? And that's how they win. And part of the way people have dismissed this online and on TV the last night is, well, Iowa's not a swing state anymore. But it is a state that we kind of need to pick up to have a good chance of getting the Senate majority. Yeah. Because Joni Ernst is up. We have two very important House seats we have to defend here. And so a process that left Democratic voters disillusioned and less likely to turn out in the fall is a huge problem. How, um, and of course, we'll know more when we have all the results, but if you're all the other campaigns right now, if you're all the different campaigns, how do you sort of make the most of at least where we think these candidates are going to end up? as you head into New Hampshire ahead of the New Hampshire primary on Tuesday? Like, are you just, what, what kind of arguments are they all making, do you think? And it's really hard because you you don't really know anything, right? I think- I guess the most likely scenario for me is, it just is the race in stasis for, another, you know, we have the State of the Union Tuesday night. They've got two days to campaign there. We've got a big debate Friday night. I guess some shit could go down there. And then you've got like three more days of campaigning and then voting again. Here's my tip for all of them. Don't, condescend uh, to Hillary Clinton in a really shitty way at the debate. And say that she's likable enough. Don't do that. <laughs> That's a good tip. I mean, there is a way in which I'm sure Bernie Sanders, if he turns out to be the winner, was obviously denied a very important campaign moment. There is a way in which this actually ends up to his advantage. Yeah. Because he is the highest floor of any candidate. And so as long as you have many viable candidates getting decent support, he has a big advantage. And so he is not – Iowa was supposed to winnow this field where we would find out if Buttigieg or Klobuchar were, really had a shot or Biden or Warren, and people would sort of start to uh, consolidate. And that did not happen. So we're going to end – No, up, probably no – it would be the first Iowa caucus where maybe no one drops out. After yeah. the Iowa caucus. But even – people might get in. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> It, this also speaks to the challenge for Pete, which is Pete, if he ends up with a SDE, with state delegate equivalent lead, benefited mightily from Biden not making viability in a lar much larger portion of precincts than anyone ever could possibly imagine. And then Klobuchar being strong, but not strong enough to be viable everywhere. Mm -hmm. When you get to New Hampshire, those people just get to vote for their person. Right. And so Pete's strategy was probably do really well in Iowa because you did well in Iowa, you look like you are the alternative to Joe Biden and Amy Klobuchar. And then even if Bernie does really well in New Hampshire, maybe you're number two. And I guess that could still happen for him, but he doesn't quite, he might not have the boost that he would have had this thing not been so fucked up. And for Joe Biden, on the other hand, it gives him a chance to sort of sneak by Iowa, pretend it never happened and show up in New Hampshire and be like, oh yeah, I'm still the most, uh, still the most electable candidate. What Iowa thing? What are you talking about? Uh. <laughs> I think that's I think that's true externally. Internally, sometimes campaigns need to be smacked in the head. Yeah. And if like his campaign manager went on our friend David Plus podcast and said they would be viable in 90, I think it was either 90 or 95 percent of precincts in Iowa. 
And clearly that did not happen. <laughs> Very clearly. No matter. Yeah. Zero percent of the two gonna, precincts we saw. I was going to say, we know we know that much now yeah. that he was not. And that bespeaks both an organizational and a political weakness that they have to come to terms with. And if they have any shot of putting this together, succeeding in South Carolina and then being launched into Super Tuesday, something's going to have to change there. Sometimes you have to get knocked down to be able to get back up, right? And yeah. that may not, he may not get that either out of this. It's interesting. You know, the one thing that I guess we were hoping Iowa would do is shake the race. Just we got two people in the left lane. We got two and a half, you know, whatever, three people in the the moderate lane. And we just need something to shake this loose to see who ends up being the final two or three competing. And the fact that we may not get the result until later today, if after has prevented an opportunity for that shakeup to take place. I will say, you know, it, it seems, uh, seems pretty bleak today, but we do have a lot of voting left. And now these primaries and caucuses happen very quickly. And we have debates coming up that I imagine that these coming debates will not be uh, the friendly affairs that they were in Iowa. Maybe they will be, but I would imagine that as we are starting to go on and, and there's a desire on all these campaigns to make sure that the field starts winnowing uh, and they are part of the people who have not been winnowed, um, that there may be some sharper elbows and there may be some more contrast as we get to these other states. And I do think even though it looks like a complete fuck up today, like by the time we get to New Hampshire and then Nevada and then by the time we're in South Carolina, you know, it could this 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 chaos could be a a distant memory. I also make one just like one slightly hopeful note in that uh, it was actually also striking to me coming to to see some of these candidates in their stump speech in the final days to see how many of them became such stronger candidates yeah. while being in Iowa and they left without a result. But Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, I was struck. Amy Klobuchar, I was struck by how much they've gained just by being in an intimate form of campaigning for so long. And I think that's probably true of a lot of the organizers who learned a lot being on the ground and doing this kind of politics as well. So we think this is uh, curtains for the Iowa caucuses? <laughs> I do. I mean, Dan was making a compelling case for this uh, being the last Iowa caucuses before the results, uh, given the very obvious need to uh, you know, give more power to diverse voices in the country. I think there needs to be a small state early in the process so you have retail politics. Otherwise, you could run a campaign by sitting in a, a satellite studio in New York and just doing TV hits all day. Podcast studio in LA. Yeah, podcast studio in LA. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Iowa had a great run. I just can't imagine that they're first again. Yeah, and not just the state of Iowa, but just the caucus process itself. Yeah, you caucuses know? are dumb. Yeah, it seems like there is no defensible reason to have elections this complicated yeah i, I like again <laughs> especially I, when we control it's not like a law we have to pass like election reform which is really tough it's the party we control it and, and not to sound like totally discordant as someone who like loved working in iowa loved being there with obama did a five-part series on the iowa caucuses like the thing i loved about the iowa caucuses is what lovett was saying that you're you're organizing at the grassroots the candidates are getting better you're having real conversations with voters you're taking hard questions you're talking to the press like you get put through the ringer in this grassroots way but that's not specific to a state any state could take on that responsibility if they want it. And it doesn't need to culminate in a caucus. It can culminate in a primary. You can have all the same retail politics yeah. in a place that ends where everybody can vote. People with disabilities always can vote. People who have to work can vote. Yeah, there's plenty of ways to do this. Dan, you wrote a piece that's on Cricket.com right now. This morning, you got up and felt like uh, well, it's, it's time to... I looked up my calendar this morning and it said, analyze caucus results. And I was like, what else am I going to do? <laughs> <laughs> you you want to you tell us a little bit about what you wrote? Sure, I was struck last night by how the complications in the Demo in the very complicated Democratic primary process, which are complicated well beyond Iowa. We have proportional allocation of delegates. It is very messy. It's going to take a long time so, to get the results in California. Exactly. And letting you know now, everyone. And what struck struck by that is how that was such a ripe target for bad actors who want to sow divisions within the party. Just in this Twitter era, the slightest hiccup can be turned into a massive conspiracy that's amplified by the Twitter account of the president of the United States. And we may see it in the State of the Union tonight. Mm -hmm. And that fuels cynicism. And what fuels cynicism hurts our party because we, we are completely dependent on encouraging people to come into the process, to make them feel like their vote counts. And the Democratic primary process does a very good job of not making you feel that way. Right. A candidate can, in a primary can win a congressional district by many points and end up with the exact same number of delegates as the opponent. And so I came up with some ideas of how, not this time, 
We can't fix it now, but going forward, we could do it. We should, as Tommy said, get rid of caucuses. We should go to winner take all. So whoever gets the most votes in a state gets the delegates. It would also make the process shorter, which I think would benefit everyone. And then rank choice voting. Because what I think is actually really wonderful about Iowa is you need to appeal to the supporters of other candidates to succeed here. Agreed. And that, and we saw that in a pretty inspiring way in the caucus site we were in, where people are like, you may be a Bernie person, you may be a Biden person, but the Bernie people over there trying to get the Biden people to caucus with them, which is in like an in- inspiring ways. Yeah. And like no one, no one was mean. Yeah. No. <laughs> it's very, it's, it's very unlike Twitter. And yeah. I think, but that, that the fact that you need to be people's second choices in Iowa minimizes negative campaigning, which yeah. minimizes division. So if you it went fuels party unity in the long term. So if you went to a ranked choice system, I think it would fuel party unity in the long term. And then the other thing that I'm really struck about the Iowa caucus is basically about a thousand of the best organizers in the party have been here for a year. They've knocked every door, they've accumulated all this data, and they've built really strong local political power. And they're all getting on a plane today and they're leaving, and they're not coming back. So what if we did this in states where you would want them to all stay and win for the nominee, like Iowa used to be in 08 and 12? Right. And so if you had a system that put Wisconsin or uh, Pennsylvania or Michigan or Arizona near the front of the line, then I think it would not be a sunk cost in what we spend to organize a state. I totally agree on the swing state thing because some people were saying, what would be a better state to do it? And some like Illinois or this. And it's like, no, no, no. I don't want to put a bunch of people in a state where we're going to win in the general no matter what. Like, let's pick some swing states, some real swing states or states that are trending towards us, like a Georgia, like yeah. an Arizona. And it doesn't have to be a hardened process. It doesn't have to be Kansas is first for forever. forever. Rotate. We can rotate. Like, yeah. it's, so, it's such a silly only the only thing I'm against for sure is a national primary, like no. all the states in one day. Terrible idea. Because because Mike Bloomberg would be spending more money than everyone by a factor of a hundred, and he would probably win. You and want not, not criticizing Bloomberg, but like that's distorting the process. You want the the grassroots aspect of this is good. Someone having to go on the ground and convince people and build an organization from the ground up is good. And you want a couple couple chances to get yeah. this right to pick the right yeah. nominee. You don't want to have one day and then after you're done and you get a nominee, be like, "Oh, now we're stuck with this person. We didn't get to see them grow through a process of different states." Have you met Democrats? We love a flight of fancy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, uh, all right, we will. Uh, Dan and I will talk to you on Thursday after we have some more results and we can talk about the. Hopefully. Uh, yeah, hopefully. Uh, we can talk about the State of the Union that will happen tonight. It's just a whole other thing that's going on. Uh, we'll see a triumphant president uh, who will be acquitted on Wednesday. Just a just a banner week here for, <laughs> for all of us. Hey, let's let's hope this is the bottom, everybody. Huh? <laughs> and let's start climbing up. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Pod Save America is a product of Crooked Media. The senior producer is Michael Martinez. Our assistant producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Carolyn Reston, Tanya Sominator, and Katie Long for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Narmel Conian, Yale Freed, and Milo Kim, who film and upload these episodes as a video every week. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.